Mayfair 515, Albuquerque Center, Roger, climb and maintain 13,000. Riding down the trail to Albuquerque, saddlebags all filled with beans and Welcome to the City on the Edge podcast with your hosts, Nora Hickey, Mike Smith, and Ty Bannerman. Welcome back to City on the Edge. I'm your host, Ty Bannerman. Nora and Mike are currently doing some uh, research on New Mexico's new recreational marijuana law. Today, I'm doing things a bit differently. I'm going to be talking about Cody Polston's book, Wicked Albuquerque, which takes a peek at the unseemly side of our city's history. And I'm also going to be speaking to Cody himself a bit. But first, I wanted to read a passage from the book about El Fago Baca, possibly the only Albuquerque resident to get a Disney movie made about him. However, the Disney version is, well, a bit Disney-fied. So I'm skipping the most famous incident in El Fago's life and focusing instead on some of his scoundrelish behavior that occurred before and after. Don't worry, though. I'll get to his heroic moment on the next episode. El Fago Baca was born on February 27, 1865, in Socorro, New Mexico. Just after his first birthday, El Fago's family decided to relocate to Topeka, Kansas. They stayed there for seven years until the mother died in 1872. El Fago's father then returned him to Socorro to live with a relative and learn the trade of being a caballero, or a cowboy. His father returned to New Mexico a year later and settled in Belen. There he became the town sheriff. At the time, Belen was still a turbulent old west town that sprang up because of the construction of the railroad. The elder Baca was considered to be a competent law enforcement officer until he got into trouble after shooting two rowdy cowboys for disorderly conduct. He was arrested and locked up in the old adobe jail in Los Lunas. The word that his father had been imprisoned reached El Fago shortly afterward. Now a teenager, he and a friend walked 55 miles to Los Lunas to break his father out of jail. The Los Lunas jail was a two-story adobe building that contained a courtroom and several offices on the top floor. The jail cells were located underneath and were highly fortified. As El Fago hid in the bushes and watched the routine of the guards, he devised a plan. The Feast of St. Teresa was going to be held later that evening, which would offer some distractions that El Fago could use to his advantage. Once night fell, he waited for the jailer to abandon his post to join in the eating and drinking. With his friend as a lookout, El Fago made his way to the rear of the courthouse, where he had spotted a cleaning ladder. Using it, he made his way to the second floor and broke in through a window. Once he was inside, he sawed a hole in the wooden floor to let his father out. After the pair had escaped out of the building, El Fago returned the ladder to the place where he had found it. After stealing some dried venison and chili in the back of the jail, the trio hid 75 feet away in a clump of high grass. The next day, they observed the movements of the posses, remembering which direction they rode off. Using that information, El Fago was able to determine the safest route of escape. After sunset, the group left Los Lunas and obtained some horses from a friend in Albuquerque. El Fago and his friend returned to Socorro, while his father rode to a village near El Paso, where he would stay for the next seven years. In 1893, El Fago was elected Socorro County Clerk, 
a post he held until 1896. A year later, while still acting as clerk, he was admitted to the practice of law. He would go on to hold many public offices, mayor of Socorro from 1896 to 1898, school superintendent of Socorro County from 1900 to 1901, and district attorney for Socorro and Sierra counties from 1905 to 1906. By 1906, Baca had left public office and become a bounty hunter. He was hot on the trail of a Kansas cattle thief named Gillette, who had fled to Mexico to avoid being captured. With a $5,000 price on his head, the thief had no other option. In Peral, Baca met with the Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa and made him an offer. He would pay Villa $1,000 if he would kidnap Gillette and bring him to the U.S. border. There, Baca would be waiting to capture Gillette and claim the reward. However, the deal went south after the reward for the horse thief was withdrawn. During the Mexican Revolution in 1914, Pancho Villa and Ofego Baca met again. This time, Villa asked Baca to secretly meet him in Juarez to smuggle some stolen merchandise into the United States. Baca agreed to the deal. Unfortunately, Baca underestimated the increase in border security caused by the revolution and was detained by border guards. By the time he reached the appointed rendezvous site, Villa had already left. Pancho accused Baca of misappropriating his property and said that he would kill him if he ever set foot in Mexico again. Baca, who was not intimidated by the bandit's threat, retaliated by stealing Villa's prized Mauser rifle. Infuriated, Pancho placed a $30,000 price on Baca's head. Allegedly, Baca tried to collect the reward himself by setting up a fake capture. However, the plan never came to fruition. Baca returned to his office in Albuquerque to continue his business. Soon he had another job, this time representing General Victoriano Huerta's counter-revolutionary army in Mexico. While serving as legal counsel for the general, Baca received a request to represent General José Salazar, one of Huerta's top officers. Salazar had been convicted of several charges and was being held at Fort Bliss. Salazar had been found guilty of robbery in El Paso, where he was apprehended by the U.S. Army. Baca agreed to represent Salazar and defended him, but when Salazar was convicted of perjury, the general was sent to Albuquerque for another trial. After arriving in New Mexico, Salazar's staff implemented a complicated plan. A mysterious woman called Senora Margarita scouted the jail by pretending to be a good Samaritan bringing the prisoners food. This allowed her to view the interior of the prison to create a map of the building and pinpoint the general's location. She also scouted the town from the jail to the railroad depot. The general's staff officers arrived shortly after that, disguised as beat pickers. After receiving the map and other information from Senor Margarita, the beat pickers took up their positions. At 9.30 p.m., Senora Margarita frantically called the jail, telling the jailer that her house was being broken into. The jailer ran to the rescue, leaving a man named Charlie Armijo in charge. Armijo was quickly overpowered by the beat pickers. The general was then released, and the party fled to a car waiting outside. From the jail, Salazar was taken straight to the train depot, where he boarded a train bound for El Paso. Meanwhile, El Fago Baca was on the Graham Saloon, drinking with friends. Although this presented an ironclad alibi, he was tried for complicity in the jailbreak. Witnesses later claimed that Salazar leaned out of the window of his car as he passed the saloon and shouted, Adios y gracias, mi amigo El Fago. 
Baca was arrested on two counts of conspiracy. But in the end, Baca was never charged, although the authorities have always thought that he was the mastermind behind the escape because he stood to profit if General Huerta had acquired any more power. Baca returned to Socorro in 1919 and was elected sheriff. He held the position for just over a year. For the majority of his life, Baca lived in Albuquerque. He became a legend that was often on both sides of the law. He was also a man of very few words. The Albuquerque Evening Herald once called him the New Mexico Sphinx, as in, the Sphinx of Egypt has not spoken a word in at least 7,000 years. The extraordinary career of Elfego Baca ended with his death on August 27, 1945. He was 80 years old. So I'm joined by Cody Polston, author of the book Wicked Albuquerque, as well as the founder and president of the Southwest Ghost Hunters Association. Uh, so Cody, I thought maybe we should start there. Can you tell me a bit about the Southwest Ghost Hunters Association and how one goes about hunting ghosts? Um, that's a long story. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I haven't been, I've actually resigned as the president in oh, 2015. Oh, okay. So, former, um, president. former president. Yes. Uh, so what, what it was is back in the eighties, I was in the military. Uh, there were five guys that are interested in this. Two were skeptical, two were believers, and I was mm -hmm. stuck in the middle. And, uh, we just wanted to honestly look at it from both angles and, um, kind of put a process in place to do that. Did it for a long time. And it became more challenging once the, um, ghost TV shows came on because really? there's there's an expectation of what it is before that we could teach people critical thinking. And, you know, th there's a reason why the skepticism part of it is important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, once that the shows came on, it was disbeliever, blah, 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 blah. You know, and it was just, it created a lot of conflict Interesting. and it, it, it got to where it, it just wasn't worth doing it anymore. It, it's gotten stupid <laughs> to be honest so yeah i got shows are pretty stupid i i don't know about the uh you know the kind of work that you you guys were doing but man those shows are they're they're hard to watch for me they are and they're all entertainment based mm -hmm. and they all follow the formula um yeah. our whole thing is the believers would put out what they thought was going on and then the skeptics in our group would put out their version of what was going on. And the idea was to let people look at both and make up their own mind what they wanted to believe or not. So that's pretty cool. So, yeah. And now, I know for myself, I often think of like ghost stories as a sort of a, a lens for learning about history. Like there's there's nothing like hearing the story of a murder to get you interested in the people who lived in a house 120 years ago you know what i mean yeah you're right and it's it's a really great vehicle for that um i became fascinated also with um because i'm actually more i'm a, more of a skeptic i guess you can say mm -hmm. i'm a skeptic that likes ghost stories right. <laughs> but it is exactly that that's how wicked albuquerque kind of started right. i wrote a book called the ghost of old town albuquerque and um from that, I already knew a lot of the interesting things that had happened in Old Town and in, mm -hmm. in New Mexico. And so when the my publisher said, do you want to write Wicked Albuquerque, more about the scandalous, just the historical side? I'm like, right. oh, yeah, I'm all over it. That's something totally different. I would love to do that. And so that's how I kicked that all off. That makes sense. So speaking of Wicked Albuquerque, what's like the elevator pitch uh, for the book as a whole? I think there is a review that was on Amazon, I think, that puts it really well. It's all the funnest parts of New Mexico's history put in one small spot. 
<laughs> I love so it. you can read all the interesting stuff and, and ignore all that. And yeah, there's been other authors that have touched on the subject, but it's been a while since they've really put their work out there. And um, I, th I thought it'd just be fun. There's a lot of neat things that people don't know. Like for example, the uh, conspiracy trials that happened after the civil war. Oh, um, a lot of people have no idea that happened here in New Mexico. So stuff like that, that is interesting. Right. There were people there. who maybe collaborated with the, uh, with the Confederates. Was that the issue? Oh, well, like one of them, for example, was a reporter. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the way Fort Union is, um, if you put a cannon on those hills, it could shoot inside the walls of the fort. Mm -hmm. So it kind of like defeated the purpose of the fort. And he right. wrote about it. And so they oh, actually charged him because he was giving information to the enemy. And he's like, dude, look, <laughs> you could see it. But they, they tried to uh, they actually put him on a military trial for wow. reporting the news. And so, uh, did they find him guilty or? No, he got out of it. Okay. But, it, but what was thing, it's not a civilian court. It was all done, you know, through the Union Army. So it right. was a military trial these people yeah. went through. But wow. when you look at some of the different stories, you could be, you know, oh, I saw that guy whistling Dixie going down the alley. That was enough that to put thing. you in there. Uh, you know, well, it's a catchy tune. So, oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> it didn't hurt you wanted that guy's land and his, you know, cows and all that, which is really what the motivation for a lot of it was. But, right. Uh, still interesting. So, the book's uh, divided into five parts, each focuses on a different wicked aspect of our city's history. I thought uh, today, we could take a look at uh, part two, Wicked Old Town. What are some of the uh, unsavory elements you unearthed in our city's current number one tourist mecca? You know, the most fascinating story, I, I lived in Socorro for a long time, so I knew about Efego Baca because mm -hmm. he was a mayor here. Right. And uh, I got curious and um, went on YouTube, and I, I, he turned up in a search. There was actually a little Disney miniseries that came out about him. I was going to say, he's got to be the only... Well, I, I can't prove it. He's got to be the only Albuquerque resident to have a, a Disney movie or, or miniseries made about them that I know of. Right. And granted, that did put him more of in a the hero bright light part of his story. Right. But when you look at people like Wyatt Earp or Bat Masterson and what they did and their mm -hmm. reputation, this guy way outdoes all those other people <laughs> with the stuff that he's done in his life. And it, it just became utterly fascinating. You go from his childhood you know, mm -hmm. helping break his dad out of jail, uh, going into uh, becoming a deputy. That's the big story everybody knows, the thing in Frisco with the slaughter gang right. and the 36-hour gun battle and all that. But then him becoming a mayor, becoming a lawyer, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. his, his uh, what should we call it, interesting relations with Pancho Villa okay. is, is fascinating. And a lot of people don't know about that. Um, the, my favorite, I think, probably from his escapades is when uh, Pancho threatened to kill him mm -hmm. after, you know, what he thought he was, his property was misappropriated or whatever. The two were working, trying to bring stuff illegally across the border. Right. But um, <laughs> Baca's response was to go to Mexico, steal Pancho's rifle. And then he had the gall to go on the, the Santa Fe, New Mexican and pose in a picture holding his rifle. Oh, really? You're going to kill me? I got your gun. What are you going to do? Sending you know, out quite a challenge there. You know, and, it's, it's, and then uh, they, I think Poncho put something like a $30,000 price tag on his head. Mm -hmm. And he actually had a little plan that how he was going to collect that money for himself. Oh, really? <laughs> Fake right. his capture. So, yeah, just a lot of gall this guy had. And then, of course, you know, his nickname was the New Mexican Sphinx. Because okay. like the Sphinx in Egypt, 
it's been quiet for 7,000 years. Oh, he was not Uh, a big talker then. He was not a big talker. More of a doer. Yes. You see that with everybody. White Earp. I mean, that guy, you know, he had his bad part too. Um, (laughs) You know, married a prostitute. He was also a bouncer, you know, at a, a brothel and, uh, he had his little criminal stint where uh, he was accused of robbery and stuff too. So they all had it. A crazy wide open world where you could go back and forth on that line, I guess. But if you think about it, who's going to catch a criminal better than another criminal? That's what they say, right? Yeah. So <laughs> there's that element of it. Yeah. Now in researching this, uh, this book, did you find any like surprising stories, stories that, you know, kind of blew your mind? Um, there's one uh, that I got into the story of Milt Yarberry, who was our first sheriff in the in Newtown, Albuquerque. Yes. Um, when I started researching it, there's back then it's kind of still the same today. You have the newspapers that are presenting the Republican point of view and those that are representing the Democratic point of view. Right. And they conflicted each other. Can you but kind of the, walk us through that situation? Like what? Who, who got shot at that point? What What happened? Okay. So what it was is. Um, Milt Yarbury, this guy, he's kind of a low life. He's, mm-hmm. he's definitely a criminal. He's basically would go somewhere, murder somebody, and then move away, change his name, become somebody else, end up killing somebody, repeat. Right. Um, his only claim to fame is he did join the Texas Rangers for a short period of time. Uh, so when Albuquerque was looking for a marshal, uh, he came and applied for that job. Uh, when he first came to New Mexico, however, he was uh, in San Marcel, a little bit south of Socorro. Mm-hmm. where he met a woman named Sadie and she had a child and they were in a relationship. They moved to Albuquerque when he got the job as marshal. Um, not long after this, this woman started seeing a guy named Brown. I can't remember mm. his first name off the top of my head, who was another deputy. And so they were hanging out doing their thing. And uh, you could tell jealousy got involved in all this and it ended up with a gunfight between the two of them. Uh-huh. Um, so he gets out of that one and then uh, murders another man. And that's what he's eventually hung for. Right. And the cool part about that is uh, the way he was hung. Yeah. Uh, it, it was a new device. So mm-hmm. instead of dropping you down, it had a counterweight. So it jerked you up. Right. So the newspaper said jerked to Jesus. <laughs> but, right. And uh, the rope tightened so tight around his neck they could not remove it and he was actually buried with that and it in the cemetery record it does say buried with no rope around neck (laughs) um and but then again i've you know as going through you find these stories and some were saying he was decapitated and his head flew into the audience and all that of course none of that's true (laughs) but um it's still you it when you start getting these conflicts of what happened compared Mm -hmm. to one to the other that was surprising the political aspect of the uh, of the paper which exactly and that still happens today i was gonna say no surprise in right <laughs> um the other thing um i thought was kind of cool everybody knows about the okay corral mm-hmm. and uh we had our own version of that here in new mexico oh really uh, with, with two marshals that were shot in martinez town uh problem here in new mexico though the bad guys won so oh, really? I guess that's yeah, that's how we lost the movie rights, I guess. But I guess so, uh, yeah. Although, you know, maybe Quentin Tarantino or somebody might willing to make it. an anti-hero out of them. Right. But yeah, there's there's a lot of neat things. Even with Baca, the whole end of his story with uh, General Salazar. Yeah, um, let's hear about that. What what happened there? Well, basically there was a it was the Mexican counter-revolutionary army. Mm-hmm. And um 
General Salazar uh, was arrested. They accused him of robbery and of perjury. Mm -hmm. And Baca was a lawyer at this time. And so he agreed to defend the guy. In Mexico and, or? Uh, here in, in, in New Mexico, yeah. Oh, in New Mexico. Okay. In New Mexico, right. Um, where was he? I think it was Fort Bliss, I think, is where he was held. So anyway, um, he was he was here in Albuquerque for trial. And there was a big, basically a plot where they freed him and he got away, he escaped. Mm -hmm. And Baca was charged with two counts of conspiracy. One was basically the, you know, the whole conspiracy. It was his idea to remove this guy through the use of violence, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And the second was Aiden abetting uh, in his escape. Right. Um, he, had, he had an alibi and uh was eventually acquitted um for both yeah. of those counts but and that's where the whole new mexico stinks came from it's after that is when he really kind of dropped out of the the public eye and, and didn't uh, really talk a lot anymore which makes you wonder right um, but he he's an attorney he knows when to say quiet i guess right but so but is that there's that whole okay did he i mm -hmm. mean there was a financial angle where he would have gained financially had the guy gotten away Right. Um, right. So that kind of raises the question, but. Right. He might have been looking out for his own bottom line there. Right. Exactly. Um, one of my favorite stories is, is about Judge Heacock, who uh, oh, yeah. apparently find a dead man. What are, could you could you tell us that story? Um, you know, that one was one of the first stories that I found. Because mm -hmm. um, I, I started the ghost tour in Old Town a long, long, long time ago. Uh, and that used to be one of the favorite ones to tell uh, there. Uh, basically it was, uh, now it's been a very long time since I had to tell a story, sure. but basically what it was is the, I can't remember what they, the guy was, I can't remember if they thought he was drunk or what, but anyway, they thought he was drunk. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was a fine involved and you know, the guy was dead. So the, <laughs> how much money has he got? Oh, X amount of dollars. Okay. I find him for, you know, resisting, uh, I forgot what it was. Oh, I think uh, it was contempt. that he, uh, yeah, contempt. Exactly. Yeah, and and they find him and took his money because of that. Right. But uh, even though he was dead. So. Even though he's dead, yeah. So yeah, he seemed like a pretty colorful character too, uh, Judge Heacock. Um, but well, that whole that whole era was like uh, there was one thing that I found like how they used to determine who became sheriff. I put yeah. that in the book, you know, like, all right, uh, you're going to fight. The winner is the sheriff. You they know? would fight with sticks out in a yeah, field or something, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. Fight with their fists. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. It's just crazy. Better than an election, I guess, for them. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody was saying Tombstone so crazy from after when you watched the movie Tombstone. You're like, mm -hmm. look at Albuquerque back then. It was pretty crazy right. around here, too. Now, are you from Albuquerque or? No, I was I was born in Texas, and um, my parents moved around a lot. The way I ended up here, I joined the Air Force. I was a explosive ordnance disposal technician in the oh, Air okay. Force. Wow! I got out in uh, Cannon Air Force Base over in Clovis. Mm -hmm. Took a job at New Mexico Tech as an ordnance technician doing explosives testing, and that's how I got entrapped. Ah, I see. <laughs> so I've been here ever since, and I love it here. Wouldn't live anywhere else. And when did you first start getting interested in kind of the the history of the area? Uh, really, I, I can remember as a kid being, being fascinated by Billy, the kid. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was that, that little bit, but I think pretty much from the time I moved here, I ended, Socorro is where I went, uh, after Clovis. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so immediately you're kind of confronted with the whole thing, you know, with the Fago Baca, cause that's all down here, you know, the stories and stuff where he had his law office and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it started with that. 
And then, of course, the ghost hunting thing, a huge part of that is looking at the history. Is what the paranormal claim, is it accurate? Is the history accurate? Right. Um, and so you get into a lot of history just doing that with different places. Mm-hmm. Um, that, in fact, we were talking about Milton Yarbury. That's where that came from. There was a claim that he was haunting uh, the, one of the old cemetery grounds. Oh, really? Uh, okay. And uh, we started digging in the history there. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, he is hung with the rope around his neck and all this. Mm-hmm. You know? And as you know, we go through and you figure out what's actually going on and how the story evolves and all that, it's kind of, right. it pans itself out. It's just a story, but um, still fun, you know, good right. Halloween thing. So, Absolutely. but yeah, you find out about his backstory and then it just kind of continues on and on the more you go. Um, you know, another big thing with this, like the Civil War the Mm -hmm. skirmish of Albuquerque, um, which we had to deal with when they, uh, remember when they took down the, uh, the plaques off the gazebo and then right. Right. The daughters of the Confederacy. Right. Yeah. And all that. And uh, so it's like, you know, you know enough about the history to go, okay, well, there was that one plaque that said there were, if I remember right, 12 Confederate soldiers buried under the gazebo. Right. Wow. (laughs) So, all right. There's no way that hasn't been proven. It needs to go. But in the after action reports written by Graydon's uh, spy company, and they were part of the Union Army that was harassing the Confederates in Old Town, Mm -hmm. they did report that they killed 12 Confederate people. So they're buried somewhere. They're buried somewhere. Yeah. But maybe not, not probably not under the gazebo. That doesn't make any sense. Um, It would be a weird place to bury people. Yeah, it would. You know, I guess it's a good landmark, though. So you can say that's where they are. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I think. I think, you know, they buried the cannons and they were digging right. a big hole in the ground. Uh, that would be kind of a convenient place to put somebody, but who knows? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much for uh, for talking to me a bit today, Cody. Um, absolutely enjoying the book. I, I picked it up just a few weeks ago and I've been loving it. Uh, and you've got another one coming out, I believe. Yeah, um, August 23rd, uh, Haunted Albuquerque comes out. Haunted Albuquerque. So we'll definitely have you back on to tell us some more ghost stories if if you're up for it oh sure yeah and even okay. if, uh, if you want to copy of the book let me know I, I can probably get you one from my publisher excellent i'll let you know i'll okay. uh, i'll send you my uh, information will do man all right well thank you so much and uh, you have a great day thank you thank you for tuning into another episode of city on the edge if you enjoyed our show tell your friends Like and share our stuff on social media, and check out our YouTube channel by searching for City on the Edge Albuquerque. This episode has been made possible by our supporters on Patreon, aka the coolest people on the planet. To join them in their support of our show and get exclusive access to content, t-shirts, and swag, go to patreon.com slash cityontheedge and sign up for one of the tiers starting as low as $1 a month. This has been a City on the Edge production.